Out of the Vat. Hello and welcome to Out of the Vat, a podcast where we talk to philosophers about their work and about their lives, both inside and outside of philosophy. I'm Ewan Rogers and today I'll be speaking to Professor Stephen French. Stephen's a professor of philosophy of science at the University of Leeds. His research interests include the nature of scientific models and representation, metaphysical foundations of quantum mechanics and the history of 20th century physics. Hello Stephen. Hi there. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Um, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment? Well, I'm working on something a bit out there okay. at the moment. Sounds good. Um, it's, uh, it's part of uh, what you might call phenomenological approaches to physics. Mm-hmm. Phenomenological in the sense of uh, Husserl. Okay. Um, so at this point, people sort of start <laughs> backing away. So it's partly historical and it's um, partly uh, philosophical. The historical part is based on uh, a quite a well-known pamphlet by these two guys, London and Bauer. Okay. And this pamphlet has long been taken to represent the standard but uh, now rejected view uh, that the measurement problem can be solved by appealing to consciousness, that somehow consciousness collapses the wave function. And that was, a, okay. that was a view that was associated with the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, and it was basically you know, beaten up and killed by philosophers like uh, Hilary Putnam and Abner Shimoni. Okay. Because how can consciousness cause interact with the wave function to you know, lead it to collapse. But reading the manuscript, um, you just have this sense that that's not quite the whole story. That people perhaps have not really grasped what's going on. It turns out that Fritz London, the, the primary author, started off as a student of phenomenology, of the you know, Husserlian <coughs> line, um, before going into physics. Mm-hmm. And if you read the manuscript with those kind of goggles on, it looks completely different. And no one seems to have realised this, except Shimoni, like, years later, in a really obscure and quite weird uh, paper on whether quantum mechanics supports telepathy. So already it's getting, um, kind of weird. But So that's, that's really um, part of the, the book, is to sort of excavate the history. And that's led me into looking at the history of you know, Copenhagen interpretation and basically the history of philosophical approaches to quantum mechanics through the 40s and 50s. But then the really interesting stuff is, okay, that's fine, so there was this historical uh, trend that has been sort of lost, effaced, as one historian called it. But then it's the, the other side of the coin is, okay, fine, but can that be a viable philosophical approach to quantum physics? <clears throat> um, and it turns out, of course, there are lots of phenomenological philosophers in the world who say, yes, of course, but it's not, to my mind anyway, it's not actually been spelled out in the way that you know, I would like to see it spelled out, in particular in relation to Husserl's phenomenology. So the other half of the book is trying to do that. Tom Reitman wrote a brilliant book, which I have no hope of ever equaling, where he looked at phenomenological interpretations of general relativity by Bayer and others. If I can get anywhere close to that in showing how a Husserlian understanding can make sense of quantum mechanics, then I'll be happy. Not that I believe it, right? This is almost <laughs> like an academic exercise. Because <laughs> right, okay. I think to be, to, to do, you know, to, to believe in, in the phenomenological enterprise, you have to adopt 
I think it's even more profound than what Van Fras and others call a philosophical stance. It's like a, almost like a, a completely different perspective on, <coughs> excuse me, the world and how we relate to it. So I'm quite interested in, um, in seeing how far I can push with that. Okay. So it's a Husserlian phenom- phenomenological take on the measurement. Form. Yeah. And what kind? Of, I mean, what? In a nutshell. How does that work? In a nutshell, so the idea is rather than consciousness somehow being outside mm-hmm. and causing um, the wave function to collapse, it's Which rather that... What people thought they were saying. Yeah, thought, it's okay. rather that the consciousness itself is part of the superposition, part of the entanglement. Oh, I see. As it, as okay. it must, because for Husserl, it's not... You know, the whole idea that there's, a, there's an us and the world, an inner and an outer, is anathema. Mm-hmm. Right? So... <clears throat> What London and Bauer are saying is we are part, you know, we are entangled too. And then they, they appeal to this um, phenomenological move by this sort of characteristic act of reflection. They say we are able to, to know our own inner states. And it's a creative act. So it's almost as if um, we choose, it's not, it's not the case that we choose reality. But that in a, in, a, in a certain sense, we choose um, which branch, if you like, of the wave function you know, um, uh, to select out of the various branches that are possible. Okay. And what, that talk of branch gives <coughs> part of the game away. Part of what they seem to be saying seems quite or can be related to certain forms of the so-called many worlds interpretation. Um, there was a version called the many minds, so that instead of thinking of these, um, oh, thank you, think of these branches <laughs> as, as specific um, worlds. Think of them. At, uh, think of it in terms of different minds occupying the branches. And there was there was a lot of discussion of that in in, um, in the nineteen nineties, and then you know there was various criticisms. But you can relate what London and Bauer are saying to 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 that. It's hard actually to articulate exactly what it's like because to do that, it's it's it's, it's like when I go to you know when I talk to other philosophers of physics, they want okay, how does it compare to the to the many worlds interpretation? How does it compare to the Bohm interpretation? It's not on the same spectrum. Mm-hmm. It's an entirely different philosophical approach to the to reality, and yeah, so it's okay. not something that you can say. Look, it's kind of like you know it can be compared to this. You have to begin, I've found anyway, with you know, very basics of phenomenology, the notion of performing the epoche, of break, bracketing off commitments <clears throat> to what is real and what is not, and so on and so forth. It's only in that context that you can begin to, I think, to make sense of what they were trying to say. Okay, yeah, that, I guess that gets me on to a follow-up question. Um, <clears throat> so how, how do philosophers of physics in general, or philosophers of science in general, um, react to... You saying you're working I think on? I'm I'm mad. I think I'm mad. I think you're mad. Yeah, okay. that's kind of what's expected. <laughs> but but here's the thing. No, I mean, I'm being a bit unfair. I mean, most people they just they smile mm-hmm. and they look at me and then they sort of edge away. And, but <laughs> I went to a conference um, in June, organised by this guy Harold Vilcher, and he's been you know interested in phenomenological approaches to science in general. It was, and it was on um, phenomenological approaches to physics. That was the title. Oh, okay. And there was, it was. There were a number of us there. It was really not a great conference in terms of well, everything. Good papers, good gender balance, good old young balance. 
but there was a real sense, I had a real sense, of all these people who were sort of, sort of finding um, uh, that they weren't alone. <laughs> that there, were, <laughs> there was a whole bunch of us. Because typically, if you're working on phenomenology, for the most part, I think many people in that sort of continental tradition are not really working on physics, or sort of hardcore physics. And if you're working on the foundations of physics you're not really going to be looking at Husserl or, you know, the neo-Kant or anything like that. So to, to have this group who are interested in this sort of the intersection between the two, uh, it, it, it was wonderful. It was just yeah. wonderful. Everybody was, you know, uh, uh, contributing to the discussions and there's a real sense of, look, you know, we're, we're doing something that everyone else thinks is mad but that we're really interested in and finding, you know, fun and, and it's new and exciting. Um, it was great. It was one of the best conferences I've been to. Now, can you tell me what the most controversial philosophical position you've ever held is? Probably the one I just talked about. <laughs> you just talked about. Okay. Yeah. Well, but also, no, I mean, uh, <laughs> structural realism as well. It's controversial. I mean, in the sense of, uh, yeah, my forms, or my oh, okay, layman's form of structural realism. So there's the moral form of structural yeah. realism. I think most people think, yeah, yeah, that's a, you know, a viable uh, uh, form of realism, and here are some criticisms of, of it. Um, but then ontic structural realism... And in particular, my form, which is a limitivist on tit structural realism, I yeah, okay. start adding uh, yeah, yeah. parentheses. <coughs> um, I think, yeah, I think most people think it's pretty controversial. Okay, so can you can you spell it out? What would say? So the the so the, the line that um, uh, James Ladyman came up with um, was that according to epistemic structural realism, all we know is the structure of the world. Right? According to ontic structural realism, all there is is the structure of the world. Mm. Now, the, the immediate question is, what do you mean by structure? You can understand structure in different ways. Um, but one way is, okay, what you've got is structure is a bunch of objects and relations between them. And you can regard those objects in quite a minimal form. All the properties, intrinsic properties and so forth, of those objects are given by the relations between them. And I think that's the view now that that, that James Ladyman now holds. Excuse me, Michael Esfeld holds that view. I am an eliminativist. I think you don't need the objects. They serve no purpose, metaphysics, metaphysical or otherwise. Um, I think they can be entirely reconceptualized in terms of the structure. And making sense of that um, is well, it's partly what my last, last but one book was all about. Uh, but it's, um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's the most controversial position I've had because I don't think anybody else believes it. Um, <laughs> everyone has issues with it, but it's still the position that I, I try to maintain. So it's relations without the latter. It's re it really is relations without the latter, and it's like, well, how can you have relations without the latter? Yeah. By, the, by definition, if it's relations without, I mean, one response is our current concept of a relation is not perhaps entirely adequate for capturing what we mean by structure. And then you know, this is the point at which people start backing away because it's like you're saying, yeah, you know, our current concept of object is not fit for purpose and our current concept of relation is not fit for purpose. Don't even get me started on properties. So what's next, French? Well, you know. <clears throat> so there is some work still to be done okay. on here. And some of that work, I, you know, I think is, is continuing to be done. It's, you know, every time I think that's it, I have nothing more to say, then... You know, I get invited to be in a symposium or to contribute something. I always end up finding you know, some other 
further point to elaborate on. So it's you know it's still ongoing. But to be honest, that my that's not my interest, but um, the amount of effort I'm putting into structural realism these days is diminishing. And which philosophical position have you changed your mind about? Um, again, relatedly, I guess. Sorry, it's just, uh, harping on the same theme. It's about the, I guess, the, the value and worth of what is often dismissed as continental philosophy. So it started with, in a way, I blame Kassira. Because when James and I were, <clears throat> when James was doing his, uh, James Lane was doing his PhD with me, we were looking for, I don't know, you know, some antecedents for the kind of view that James was sort of trying to articulate. And um, Kassira has this, at that, as his book on quantum mechanics, one of the first philosophical sort of analyses of quantum mechanics from the early 1930s, called Determinism and Indeterminism in Quantum Physics. And he adopts this neo-Kantian line, of course, and applies it to quantum mechanics. And it's a brilliant book. I mean, Michael Friedman has, has talked about it since. And it's you know, much more well-known than it was, I think, back in you know, 93 or whatever it was. But it was that, in that book, Kassira adopts this kind of neo-Kantian structuralist conception. And that's what made me think, ooh, there might be something to this neo-Kantian stuff. Again, it's like, I don't really... I don't buy into it completely, but if there's material from it that I can appropriate, then I'll take it. And that set me off down the, the sort of slippery slope to appreciate that actually these you know, neo-Kantian and phenomenological accounts actually can be of, of value. I mean, when I was a student, when I was you know, in London at, at what was you know, Chelsea College, you know, this kind of stuff was just anathema. I mean, in my department of history and philosophy of science, you couldn't even mention the name Coo, right? I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> how hardcore we were. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> so that's, I mean, in terms of a position that I've really changed my mind on, I guess it's, I guess it's that. Okay, what's the most recent work of fiction that you've read? Um, well, I think the most, uh, the most recent one... Reveal my cultural shallowness. Um, it's a <laughs> series. It. It's a series by Martha Wells called the Murderbot series, and it's a, they're basically short novels or novellas, four of them, and it's basically about a sentient android. It's, sorry, it's an android that becomes sentient. And it's a security android. So it's the book is a combination of space opera and sort of crime thriller because this android is trying to figure out why this particular company sent this team of mercenaries to kill uh, the people the android is supposed to be looking after. Sorry, spoiler alert for anyone listening to this. Um, <laughs> so and at the same now. time, it's trying to figure out how to interact with humans and what it is to be, what it is to be human. So it actually, it's, it works, you know, it's a great, it's a fun read. It's kind of sassy and you know, the, the writing is really sharp and kind of funny sarcastic but also it's sort of shot through with this these considerations of what is it to be human can I can I also say what my favourite comic is of course because yeah. actually I, yeah. I read more a lot of uh, comics okay. so there's one um, uh, I think one of the favourites it's ended now um, I don't usually get that many Marvel and DC comics it came out with Marvel it's called Eternity Girl 
by Magdalena Visaggio and Sonny Liu. And it's about someone becoming someone else. And, but the artwork is just so amazing. I mean, the story is interesting and intriguing and um, quite sad in some ways, but the artwork is absolutely gorgeous. Um, and there's another one, um, Gideon Falls, uh, by Jeff Lemire and um, Andrea Sorrentino. And this is more a, a horror comic. Um, this guy keeps having this vision of a barn in a field and terrible things are happening. But again, the design of the comic. So this isn't your standard, so many panels per page, bam, pow. This is just everything broken up and twisted and turned around. It's just, I think, one of the most amazing comics that's out there at the moment. Okay, what is your favourite TV show? Oh, that's a difficult one, but I think the one that I relish the most is a show called Legion. Okay, I'm not heard of it. <laughs> it's um, Stephen shaking his head. <laughs> um, it's set in the sort of X Men universe, so it's about mutants. Um, but it's not, you know, all powers and blasting and you know latex suits and. You know, um, it's, it's um, many of the powers are sort of telepathic powers. Um, one of the main characters in it goes by the name of Sid Barrett. Right. And for the Floyd fans out there, yeah, yeah. that is in fact Sid. Um, yeah, but she's, she's a woman. Um, okay. And her power is basically she touches you, you swap bodies. Right. So she can't really. You know, and, but the main hero um, has these uh, telepathic powers. Anyway, it's not about that. It's about, it's about madness and um, identity. And the aesthetics is amazing. I mean, just the visuals. It, every shot is, abso- I think it's just absolutely gorgeous. The soundtrack is so appropriate, right? Um, uh, all these songs from the 60s. It's got a very right. 60s feel to it. Hence a lot of bright colours. Um, just really strange characters in it. Um, for much of it, I don't really know what's going on. But I absolutely love it. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. Uh, and it's, yeah, I think for me... You love it in yeah. spite of not knowing what's going yeah, on. Yeah, it's... <laughs> I'm hoping at the end of this series... This, this, this series um, the second series that I'll, you know, you kind of know that there there's some, some baddies and there's some goodies and there's a struggle going on but the terms in which that struggle is conducted are actually quite unclear and obscure um, bodies are being swapped and minds are being infiltrated um, but, you know uh, there's a line from The Big Chill where one of the characters says you've just got to let great art wash over you and I think that's true of this series. What did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> a fireman, an astronaut. <laughs> um, I, I, I think the first, I don't know, my first proper thoughts of what I wanted to be when I was at school, I was going to be some kind of forensic scientist. Because okay. um, I, I started off doing really well in English, and I think, you know, there were maybe some thoughts of being a journalist or something like that, but then I discovered physics. 
And I basically thought, yeah, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do something like, I don't know, I, I think I saw an ad, you know, join the police and become a forensic scientist. And that just seemed like really cool. This was before the days of CSI, I hastened to add. Right, yeah, so yeah. I thought that sounded really cool. Um, so that's why I started um, uh, with a physics degree. I'm actually an imposter. Right. I don't have a philosophy degree. Right, okay. That's, that's okay. Not at all. <laughs> at some point, you must have studied philosophy. Uh, uh, well, so it's interesting. So uh, you know, I was doing physics at Newcastle, and I was asking kinds of questions that made my, made my lectures in quantum physics uncomfortable. And one of them said, basically, why don't you bugger off and talk to someone in philosophy? And I had mates over there, and they said, yeah, talk to this guy. And the, one of the lecturers in philosophy said, hey, if you're interested in that stuff, there's this new guy in London called Michael Redhead. He's only part-time, he's just started, don't really know what he's like, but he does this stuff in, in quantum physics. So I applied to do the PhD at this um, Department of History and Philosophy of Science at Chelsea College, which wasn't really, the, wasn't really a rival to the LSE because it was, I thought of it was more as complementary. The people at Chelsea tended <coughs> you know, to focus more on philosophy of physics, philosophy of biology, philosophy of probability. So Don Gillies was there, Moshe Makaba, John Dawling. Hanka Kaminga, who did philosophy of biology, Heinz Post, and Michael Redhead. Um, and as part of the philosophy program, you had to do a year, like crash course, in philosophy of physics, philosophy of probability, logic, and epistemology, epistemology aimed at philosophy of science, and philosophy of science. So I have basically, the only philosophy training I've had is this one-year crash course. Um, but it was pretty cool because you know it was a crash course with the likes of John Dawling and Moshe Makover and Don Gillies and Michael Redhead. It's obviously so, served you well. Um, yeah, it's got me. <laughs> <laughs> as long as nobody probes the history yeah. too deep. Okay, right. I won't ask any more questions on that. <laughs> um, what's the most unexpected job you've ever had? So I once found myself. This is like, how, 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 how have I lied to you, that show? I once found myself interviewing Tina Weymouth and Chris Franz from Talking Heads. Okay. Because in my final year of the physics degree, um, my mates, two mates and I, decided, as you do, to um, publish a music magazine. Um, and there was this, it was great at those days. This was the 70s, man, it was so good. There was this anarcho-syndicalist collective in Newcastle <laughs> that, had a print, of course was, that had a print machine and collate these massive machines, this collating machine. And they let us, I mean, what were they thinking? They let us use them. Well, and so we put this magazine together and one of the, you know, had the usual thing, album reviews and content reviews. And it sounds bizarre now to even say it, but at the time, Talking Heads were doing their first UK tour supporting of all people dire straits. <laughs> really? Yeah, I know exactly. I know. It's like, really? So um, we we just asked. Yeah, can we? We'd like to interview the band. And obviously they you know, they had no idea who we are. They thought we were some kind of you know student newspaper, and we weren't going to disabuse them. So we found ourselves in a room much like this with Tina Weymouth and Chris Franz talking about the music scene in New York and. <laughs> And I, I've lost the interview. I've lost the only thing I can remember from it is we asked some silly question about so how do you like Britain? And Tina Weymouth said you know, she thought 
thought for a bit, and she said, well, there's so much more meat in America. And that became the headline of our interview. Yes, <laughs> so that's much great soundbite, yeah. Meat in America. <laughs> and that was it. And we, um, we only produced one issue, um, but we sent it to John Peel, and he gave us an honourable mention on his show. He really liked it. Um, and that was it, really. And she, I mean, t- I have to say, I mean, both Tina Weymouth and Chris Franks were utterly cool and wonderful. I mean, they didn't, they didn't look down on us. They didn't, you know, they treated us with complete respect, like you know, as if we were you know, proper, you know, music journalists. They answered all our questions. Well, they thought you were, didn't they? Well, I mean, it, well, I think it became obvious fairly quickly <laughs> that we were blagging it. Like, okay, right. <laughs> you didn't, you didn't manage to get David Byrne in there. No, he even in those days he kept himself separate from the rest of the band. Oh right, okay. Yeah. So how do you like Britain? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not much. Um, <coughs> okay. Um, what do you like about being a philosopher? Um, talking philosophy mm-hmm. with students, having fun. The most important thing is to have fun. So the things that I really like are like the reading groups we have at Leeds, where we're just tearing apart someone's book and critiquing and all. When, when they're not there I'm assuming <laughs> yeah mostly yeah. when they're not there um, and you know seminars post seminars just talking philosophy discussing philosophy um, yeah I think it's I think it's wonderful it's, you know exchanging exchanging ideas and just coming up with something new a, a new thought a new way of approaching something or someone you know one of my PhD students says oh how about looking at things this way uh, like this, like this stuff we're going to do tonight on imagination. Just talking with Alice about, you know, imagination. Uh, you know, just the fun of doing that, of coming up with you know, new ideas and, and new ways of you know, looking at science. Okay. Um, now, our final question: What don't you like about being a philosopher? Um, well, there's some of that. Is you know, what don't like about being an academic, right? So it's all the usual okay. stuff, the managerialism. Blah, blah, blah. What I don't like, I don't, what I don't like about philosophy in general is, is the stuff that a lot of people complain about, which is the attitude of certain folk. Um, you mean within or outside of philosophy? Within. I don't really care what people outside of philosophy. Right? I mean, <laughs> no, it goes without saying that they think they're a bit, they're a bit mad, but you know, um, it keeps me off the streets, and I don't cost but that much. You know, but. Uh, just some of the attitudes, I think, within philosophy, the arrogance, uh, putting people down, some, you know, the sneering, the condescension. Not that I'm immune to that myself, so I think it's something we all, all of us have to watch for and, you know, you know, look out for and make sure we treat other people with respect. You know. But I do get sometimes really frustrated by the, some of the hierarchical attitudes um, and... I think it's, I think it's fine to approach a topic vigorously with passion, um, even negatively. I mean, that's that was what I learned at Chelsea College. That's how they did things. As long as you don't make it personal and you respect people, and at the end, even if I, you know, criticise and dismiss an idea, I think it's 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 worth it because you know. Someone's come up with this idea. Someone's actually come up and put something forward. It's like music, you know. I don't. There's quite a lot of music I like. There's quite a lot of music I don't like. I pretty much appreciate anything live simply because 
bloody hell, someone's actually got up <laughs> yeah. and they're doing it. That's, I think, so amazing. It takes amazing bravery to do that. I think it's amazing for someone to stand up and give a philosophical talk in front of a bunch of people. And that has to be respected, even if you think you know, the ideas don't make any sense or you've got you know, criticisms of it, you think there's ways of getting, whatever, getting around it, undermining it. I think you just have to respect the fact that someone is doing it. I think, I don't know, what's the message? The message is that philosophy is fun, it really is. But philosophy, when it's done right, like, philosophy, like most things, when done right, is fun. Great. Okay, thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you for Cheers. inviting me. You've been listening to Out of the Vat, a podcast brought to you by the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method, the Forum for Philosophy, and the Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science, all based at the London School of Economics and Political Science.